good to see you guys. Good to be with y'all for the third week. Um, what a rich time of, of worship that was. Good to do that with you. There, there's few things I really enjoy more than being able to hear the, the echoes of the community um, uh, bellowing out these songs. It's one of my favorite things about Sundays with my church. Uh, there's something really unique about people who are broken, fractured, um, splintered, who are gathering together to declare of grace and of power and of truth um, because we all come from these very unique places of hurt and confusion and mystery and then we get to collide in here as one one collective people and I think there's something really unique about that um, un- unlike any other time when people gather there's something very unique about that and so um, we are in our third week our final week of this three-week series called uh, Jesus, the person of power. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19. I want you to go ahead and start getting there as we think a little bit about the previous two weeks. And uh, if you've been here the previous two weeks, you've, you've gotten a snapshot of Jesus and how he uses his power. And so it's not just this general conversation of, yes, Jesus is powerful and everything he says and does is full of power, but more specifically, how he uses his power in engaging people. And so in the first week, we looked at Mark chapter 4, and we saw the story that so many of us grew up hearing about where Jesus calms a storm. And we see the disciples who are fishermen who knew all about storms. They find themselves in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, overwhelmed by a storm. And it says that they are scared to death, and they run to get Jesus. The Bible actually says he's laying down with his head on a cushion. I find that so unique every time we mention that, on a cushion. And so he wakes up, and the storm didn't wake him up. The cries of his people woke him up. And so he calms the waves, he calms the wind, and then he starts to address the lack of faith in their heart. And I think what was most notable about two weeks ago was the fact that the storm did not produce a lack of faith in them. That was already there. The storm exposed it. It just brought out what was already inside of their hearts. And so what Jesus was doing is using the storm to draw out sin, to draw out lack of belief and faith, and to address it, right? So we saw that he's the stiller of storms. Last week we saw that he's a liberator to captives. As they crossed over to the Sea of Galilee, uh, to the other side, we saw this in Mark chapter 5, where uh, as soon as they get off the boat, they encounter this man who is demon-possessed, and, and the name of this demon is Legion, which means, uh, he says, for we are many. There were six to 10,000 demons inside this man, and that Jesus rescues this man. He casts uh, Legion out and restores to him hope, his life, and remember his dignity. I mean, he clothed him for crying out loud. <laughs> he restored to him his dignity. And so we see Jesus and how he actually utilizes his power Instead of trying to oppress or trying to win something, he uses his power to, to liberate the captives, um, to expose sin that easily entangles and overwhelms, chains that bind, right? That's how he uses his power. And so tonight we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, and we're going to look at a, a specific way that Jesus' power is found, and it's in his kingship, okay? Jesus' kingship. It's a very specific term and description of who Jesus is for not only his disciples, but how he is to be for us, that he is for us king. And so we're going to see something unique about his power in the midst of his kingship. Now, 
Um, there are dozens upon dozens of caricatures about Jesus, depending on where you go, maybe what church you go to, uh, what event you go to, what conversations you have, maybe your, your cousins, your brother, your sister, your parents, your grandparents. There's all these caricatures of Jesus, and, and they all come from this place of either they were taught that or they had an experience. So a lot of the way we view Jesus is based upon what we were taught, what we were told about him, and then experiences we went through that somehow have kind of shaped and formed what we see when we hear the name Jesus, right? So that's why certain songs will appeal to different people. Like there are certain songs we sing, we're like, I like this song, and the next song comes on, and you're like, this is me all in right now, right? And it might be different for different people because of experiences or what you've learned, what you were told, And so we have these snapshots of Jesus that might be correct and might be incorrect, but there are dozens of caricatures. And what Luke is doing, he is going to give us a holistic, as complete as possible, full understanding of who Jesus is in his kingship. A very robust understanding, not some straight line tunneled view of just this, but he wants us to see the well-rounded nature of God And Jesus as king, I think it's going to be very, very interesting for us because I think there's certain aspects of him being king that we're going to gravitate toward for some of us and other ones that we are not. And so here's kind of what's setting up Luke chapter 19. Every ministry moment of Jesus was leading toward Jerusalem. I don't know if you're aware of that, that everything was always pointing that way. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, Peter's mother-in-law, she has a fever. Jesus heals her. And when she is healed, she starts cooking for them, which, so showing hospitality, which is awesome. And then it says, in late at night, early morning, Jesus goes to an alone place to meet with his father. And Peter has been looking for him because here's what would happen if a healer shows up and begins healing. People start telling other people who tell other people who tell other people This guy's mother-in-law was healed. You might want to give it a shot. All of a sudden, the masses have arrived. So Peter feels this um, obligation to some degree of Jesus, you have to come back to my my house. There are people that need you to heal them. And Jesus' response to him, it's very unique and interesting. He says, no, we're not going back there. We must continue because there are more that I need to teach too. And it's always made me wonder about how many times we see where Jesus heals somebody, but how many times in order for that to happen, he had to say no. You ever consider that? Like the stories of people where uh, the woman who's hemorrhaging or uh, uh, someone's daughter has passed away. How many requests came his way and yet he had to actually say no in order to move forward and end in the climactic point of his ministry, which is Jerusalem. Like to get to the cross, he had to say no to things. And just so that's a side note. So if you're a, a yes man or a yes woman, if you're someone who can't say no, then you actually have the prime example of someone, the, Jesus, the person of power who actually had to say no in order to move forward to the journey that he was called to, right? So you see that everything he does, every healing is constantly, it's like he's pressing forward, pressing forward, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And then finally, Luke 19, he arrives in Jerusalem. And there's some unique things that happen when he arrives in Jerusalem. And so here's what Luke's going to do. He's going to show us three snapshots and really three incidents that involve Jesus. 
three different moments in chapter 19 that deal with him and Jerusalem, this climactic scene of his arrival where the cross would take form for him, right? There's these three incidents we see. In each of these incidents, we're going to see Jesus have different moods. And that's a weird thing to say because when we hear moods, we're thinking, okay, you're saying Jesus has some mood issues? I don't mean moody like us. We're moody simply because we didn't sleep well or we don't like humans. That's not his issue. His moods adjusted according to who he was around and what he was seeing and what needed to be spoken and dealt with. And so you're going to see three incidents where he responds in particular ways so that you and I, when we think about him not just being really good, but our king, we might get a holistic and full, robust view of him being a king for us. Sound good? And in all these three incidents, he is going to be pushing back, pushing back on these common ideas of who he is and who he's supposed to be. You're going to find this out here. Luke chapter 19 We're going to look at verse 28 through 40, where we see Jesus um, entering into the city of Jerusalem. Verse 41 through 44, where he weeps over the city. Verse 45 through 46, where he cleanses the city. So arrives in humility and a humble nature on a donkey. He cries and weeps over the city, and then he cleanses the city. Let's read this, verse 28 through 40. Got a lot to cover. Let's try to cram it all in. Sound good? says this in verse 28 of Luke 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you just say this, the Lord has need of it. Verse 32, so those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. It's good to go. Verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they said, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, this is not just 12, this is the masses of people who follow him from afar, the whole multiple of this multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, then even the stones would cry out. All right. So there's a lot going on there, but this is documenting Jesus' arrival to this climactic scene in his ministry. This is where it ends. All these things culminate into this city with this people in these words and these actions. Now, it says that he's already prearranged his arrival. He's already gone before his disciples and everybody else, so much so that he gave a code phrase to his disciples for them to go get a colt and a donkey. And if they have a question about it, just say this and it's your magic code and you get the colt and the donkey. Don't even worry about it which I'm, I'm, I'm always intrigued by the other gospel accounts of this moment. And I'm actually very encouraged by it because if you have an understanding of what the disciples wanted Jesus to be, they want him to be larger than life. They want him to have this power that we're going to talk about in a minute to display things with a particular attitude and a particular nature and a particular confidence that doesn't 
match up to a donkey and a colt. And so you can imagine him having this conversation with these disciples saying, going in and get a colt and a donkey because I have need of it. The Lord has need of it. I'm going to sit on one of them. And you can imagine to some degree them going, this does not match what I think about you. Like I have my own view of who you should be, how you should enter into the city. I've been thinking about it for a year for crying aloud. You never asked me my opinion. I know it did not include a donkey or a colt. Yet it still says, but they did as they were told. It still says, but they believed and they obeyed, even if it didn't quite make sense. I'm encouraged by that because I'm reminded of myself and these disciples. That's literally nothing to do with this sermon, but that was just kind of side note. Anyway, he pre-arrived everything, right? Pre-arranged everything. And he gets this, this donkey and all of a sudden people start throwing their cloaks on this donkey, right? And for he is going to sit on this and enter into the city. Now, here's what this would invoke if you were someone in this time, you had a fair to really good idea and understanding of the Old Testament. You may not have the, the perfect understanding, but at the very least, people in Jerusalem had an understanding of the dynamic of the Old Testament. And so there are particular prophecies that stood out to them. So they're always waiting for the Messiah. They've been looking for um, the Messiah to show up. And remember, the people in whom he is spending time with are the marginalized. They're the ones the Roman Empire have been crushing. They have very little. They, they don't have a lot of dignity. They don't seem to have the things that others have. They feel like they are left out. They need a leader. They need someone who would speak on their behalf, right? Now, if you go back to Zechariah, which I'm sure we've all been reading all week, Zechariah has this prophecy that sparks into the mind of the people in Jerusalem watching Jesus enter into the city. Here's what it says in Zechariah chapter 9, 9 through 12. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So already you know, if these people see Jesus on a donkey entering into Jerusalem and very humble in nature, things start turning going, okay, I don't know if it's him, but he is without saying it, declaring he's the Messiah. So they have ideas of what the Messiah is to be and how this king is to live and lead them, right? Here's the things I want. Here's what he must deliver on. Let's keep reading on this uh, in Zechariah. Verse 10, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 12, Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Now, there's a lot of Shakespearean verbiage in there, right? Like you read that, you're like, yeah, Ephraim, let's do this. Like it's, it's a little bit mysterious of what's going on in this prophecy. It simply means this. The prophecy that Zechariah speaks is when the Messiah comes, he will come humble in nature on a donkey. Secondly, here's what he's going to do. He's going to set the captives free. He's going to wage some kind of war against oppression. He's going to use this mighty warrior sword and he is going to abolish what has kept people in oppression of any kind. 
So if you live in Jerusalem, you're thinking two things. I'm looking for a man who's humble riding in on a donkey. Yep, check. And I'm waiting for him to come in with a warrior sword and destroy these suckers who have been oppressing me for all these years. And that's the part that hasn't been accomplished yet. So you have to understand what they're expecting, yet what he delivers on. They're expecting, I need type A. I need type A personality. We need a general. We want a warrior, someone who might overspeak instead of underspeaking, someone who pushes the envelope, not, not whatever the opposite of that is, like unpushing the envelope. We need someone who is going to bully their way into beating off our oppressors beating them away, removing them from the reality that is our lives. We need someone to do that. Let's do this. And here he comes on a donkey, meekly and humbly. You imagine like the war that's going on in their emotions and their thoughts. Like, okay, Zechariah said this would happen, but I'm ready for him to get off. Like if you, Jesus, if you want to walk, it'll go faster. We, We can just do this. Let's conquer things. And everything is going amazing. There are songs being sung from, from Psalm 119. Blessed he is who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The celebration is strong. It's short-lived. Because what starts to happen when these people have this caricature set up of, here's who Jesus is and here's who I need him to be. And according to my world and my personality and my history and what my friends say and what my family believes and and I grew up here and here's what I need to do to make sense of who he is so I can actually believe, I must believe in something and someone that makes sense and fits into my kind of box here. Here is what I'm asking for and need and Jesus disappoints all of them. Absolutely disappoints them. He lets them down. This is what the Messiah is to be And he brought a different gospel. His idea of a warrior sword is different than their idea. What they wanted was some kind of zealot. All these zealots popping up trying to gather these groups of men and women going, let's take over and overthrow. And when they got captured, they were crucified. But Jesus was no zealot. He's the king. And he comes in meekly riding in on a donkey into the city. I think it's worth a question here. Um, it's one thing for this to be in Jerusalem, but, but I think it's probably a proper question to ask. Has Jesus ever legitimately, in your eyes, disappointed you? And look, I'm not talking about the Sunday school answer like, he never disappoints, he is through and through. I understand that. I'm asking, have there been moments where he just absolutely disappointed you? Maybe you... You had expectations that that relationship would end up in engagement. It did not. Maybe it was with your mom and dad that there would be a restoration in their marriage and there has not been. Maybe it was that the loneliness that has just beaten you down would just be removed and your last year or two here at university, you would feel some sense of, I belong. And maybe that hadn't happened yet. Have you ever felt really let down by him? Could be significant, could be something small. I was thinking about this. Um, I, have, I have felt very disappointed by some things. And, and obviously we know it's not because he did something wrong. It's because my expectations and my belief system of what he should be and how he should act was off. 
Like I had to do the adjusting, not him, right? And I mentioned this just very briefly last fall when I had the privilege of coming here, but um, last July, like I lost my father. He was, um, it, it was unexpected. Uh, my father was a tremendous pastor. The kind of pastor to where, I know there's a lot of stories where pastor's kids become rebellious. He was so gracious. I just couldn't even if I tried. It's like, I'm a rebel. Oh, you got Jesus eyes. I, I just couldn't do it. He had these blue eyes that just kind of pierced through you. And with a smile, you're like, I will repent and tell you everything. Uh, it just that kind of man, like larger than life, but not because of a boisterous personality. Um, he would always come over and he would do yard work at my house. Um, even when we didn't need it. I'm like, dad, you literally mowed yesterday. He's like, ah, I just want to keep busy. And he would come out and he would do all this yard work. And this one particular morning, it had been pretty hot. It was July. And um, my daughter and I had to go um, get her a cast for her. She broke her thumb, kind of crazy. And we came back and we couldn't find my dad. And we were looking for him and couldn't spot him. And, and so finally I told her, hey, I'm going to, I got to go to a meeting. Um, granddaddy will come inside and he'll kind of close things up. You're 11. You can manage the house for a few moments. Um, and so I went out to my car and I opened the car door and I noticed the side gate to our backyard is, is open, which is, doesn't usually happen. So peered around and then I could just see, see my dad's legs and he was laying down. And he still didn't clue into what was going on thinking, it's hot, maybe he got some water. He just, maybe he was just laying down. And as I walked closer, I could tell that, that something had happened. And it wasn't so much my dad passing that has disappointed me. It was some of the details I feel like transpired then because I felt very alone doing CPR for seven minutes. I remember begging, please let them show up because I can't be in this situation any longer. It was also a gift, just so we're clear, because I got to spend these last moments, whether he was alive at the moment or not, I don't know. It was a gift, but it felt like the weight of the world. And the EMS shows up and they go after everything and I go to the front yard and they shut that gate. And it was interesting as much as I had seen in the last 10 minutes, I was absolutely convinced it was going to be a scenario where after 20 minutes of work, they came out saying, okay, it was close, but his, his pulse is somewhat normal. We're going to get him to the hospital. I was truly expecting that, absolutely expecting that. This went on for 15, 20 minutes, and I'm looking at the gate, expecting that response. My wife is talking to a neighbor, and, and they open that door. And they just lay out the thing you see in the movies. <laughs> Those moments where like, that's the movies. This isn't real life. Like, we saw, we're sorry we did everything we could. And I remember just snapping. It wasn't rude. I was just snapping at my wife. Like, come here. And it, I just remember how, how truly disappointed I was. Not even just sad, disappointed. Because that's not how that's supposed to turn out. God has been so gracious to our family throughout. Great testimony of my dad. Um, just amazing. Listening to some of his sermons. I'm like, you were so good. Um, reading his sermon notes. Like, man, you write amazing sermons. But I remember feeling for a good month of just pure disappointment. Now, that is this extreme major moment. Maybe for you, it's, it's something more consistent and it's not something that profound. But I wonder if you've ever felt disappointed by the way he decides to be a king and the decisions he makes. He, he, he's been disappointing people from the beginning. Um, you think about his ministry, uh, Lazarus, his dear friend, 
He shows up late on purpose, by the way, because he was healing others. He shows up late. And remember Martha, she makes a statement. If you'd been here, he'd still be alive. Complete disappointment. Because sometimes it doesn't seem like Jesus is moving fast enough. Agreed? He's on a donkey too much. Get off and run a little bit. (laughs) Exercise just a bit in this moment. Get back on the donkey, but then come off of it. So he doesn't seem to move fast enough for, for a lot of us. You think about the leper that we talked about last week briefly, about how he touched this leper who, remember, if you were clean and you touched the unclean, it meant you would become unclean and everyone would usher you out of the city, basically. Can you imagine all the the utterances from the Pharisees and even the ones around them going, "Um, he's breaking some rules here and this is not what we have in our idea of what the Messiah should be. And we know he's not the Messiah because he's a liar. And so he shouldn't be doing that. He's letting people down left and right. How about the adulterous woman who was probably even set up by the Pharisees? And there's this group of men with stones about to stone her. And they try to test Jesus with the whole scenario of, of this woman has been found caught in the middle of adultery. Like not after the fact, in the middle of it. So the Bible says, Old Testament Jesus, you might know this, that she is to be stoned. You know, just in that humble, I wish I just had the, the tone. I wish I knew the tone. It's like, okay, well, anyone who's never sinned, I mean, go for it. Like, start hurling that stone. And they all like, oh, he's right. And they drop the stones, remember? And remember how he addresses this, this, this woman of the night, right? This woman who is, who is viewed as unclean in so many different ways, and he shows such grace and mercy. Imagine, like, the way that people saw that. He was letting them down. That's not how the Messiah would ever treat someone like that, right? He's been letting people down left and right because we have these caricatures of how he is supposed to behave according to our standards. So that's the first image we see. He enters into the city meekly and humbly on a donkey, and that sounds really good until you want him to do something. Second thing we see is verse 41 through 44. It says this. I'm going to try to move this along because there's so much I'm just kind of cramming. I don't know. Verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, what that you even, uh, he, would that you, even you, had known on the day the things that make for peace, but now are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will be set, set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children with you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Translation, he weeps over the city because they have not seen the Messiah has arrived. Their hearts are too hard and they're consumed with themselves. Now, I want you to see, there's a picture of this. What would, what would be the case with the Mount of Olives? There's this one thing it was really known for. As he moves along Bethphage and the town of Bethany, comes around the Mount of Olives, it's known for having this view of the entire city. So you get that image here. He's on his donkey, moving slow. It's not a fast pace. Moving slow and stops enough to look over the entire city. And there is a pitying compassion that hits him over the rebellion and the spiritual blindness and the numbness over the city, and he weeps over it. Now, here's what's amazing. We see that he speaks this like prophetic thing that sounds so judgmental, but it's all marinating in compassionate weeps. Like just begging for the city to wake up. 
So you see that he enters humbly and now he is looking at the city whom he is coming to be sacrificed for. This people, a people like this, and they're just too blind. Now that view, it's amazing. He sees every detail. You can see um, uh, the cafes, whatever those were like back then. You could see the temple. You could see the cemetery, the bathrooms, public restrooms, all the homes. He sees all the diversity of the city and he has compassion and weeps over all of them. And think about the details that you struggle with. And it's a compassionate king. I mean, it's, he speaks some really difficult things, but it's a compassionate king. Like there's no way you look at a king who starts to weep and think, that man's going to lead me into battle. You look at that man going, mm, we might need a plan B in case he becomes emotional. That's how he's viewed. So he comes in on a donkey humbly. Now he's weeping. These are not the ways that people thought the king would show up. They had an idea. They had some kind of caricature. Uh, the third image is this, verse 45 to 46. And he entered the temple and began to drive out all those who sold, saying to them, and it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now, if you read Mark's gospel, this scene happens a day after the previous two incidents. So it's not just like, pff, pff, pff. it is these first two, a day goes by, then he comes into the temple. Very slow and methodical and observes what's happening. And what's happening is the high priests are basically extorting money from the poor. You want to meet with God? You pay us everything you have, become more poor, but hey, we're gonna help you meet God. And he is filled with such rage at the lack of purity and cleanliness, the lack of, of, of goodness and kindness found in the temple of all places. So it's amazing he enters the city, he comes around the city, and now he's in the heart of the city. And as he looks around the heart of the city, he becomes hostile. Not hostile the way you and I are because we have quick tempers, but he has this holy anger, which is different. And he starts throwing things over. He says that he had a cord of rope, which the way that's described in the scriptures is it takes hours to make. Can you imagine just for a moment, Jesus sitting in the corner watching all this mess going down. He's just slowly like, probably not scary eyes like I'm given, but just slowly looking at every detail. I'm going to knock that thing over. You watch out. Like slowly. And then he goes into action and cleanses the temple. So you see these three different images in these incidents that naturally all of us gravitate toward one more than the other. We love, oh, he's so humble in nature. He doesn't come in barging on my doors. He is very humble in nature and just has a conversation with me. Great. It's like, oh, he's full of compassion. He weeps with me. Correct. But some of us think that's it. Or no, he loves truth. He will blast anyone out the way if they lack truth. Okay, well, he is true. So you have these three incidents and we all gravitate toward all of them. Uh, in different ways. Now, let's do a quick recap so we can make sense of what in the world this means for us before we head out of here and conquer the world with these aspects of his kingship. Now, first, we see God riding on a donkey. There's a lot of layers to this significant. G.K. Chesterton has this poem called, wait for it, The Donkey. (laughs) And it talks about the awkwardness of a donkey talks about the lack of, a, of beauty that a donkey has. 
about the really long, floppy, strange ears of a donkey. Like no one looks at a donkey going, love your ears. Like, hmm. um, the way a donkey moved, it's just awkward. It's just awkward. And there's this parallel on purpose of what Jesus is doing riding on a donkey, obviously with humility and humble nature. But have you ever heard the sounds that a donkey makes? Have you ever observed a donkey? They bring nothing to the table. Like no one goes, is that your donkey? It's an amazing donkey. Like no one is overwhelmed by a donkey. It's more like, oh, did you bring your donkey along? Like that's the attitude toward it. Now, the way they enters the city to give sacrifice of his life for the city is specifically with a donkey. Now, what do you and I have come with a donkey? Everything. Like you look in the mirror, I don't care how full of pride you are. I don't care how much you think of yourself. You look in the mirror and what you're gonna start noticing is emotionally, physically, and spiritually, all the things that are failures and shortcomings of why you could never be used like him or her. And so there's this pressure, right? There's this pressure in church, there's this pressure in a university where we, we value uh, the values of Christ as king. There's this pressure of, if I can just appear like I'm worthy to be associated with him and his kingship, then I'm good, but I cannot be seen as awkward or looked down upon or different or strange, or lower of IQ. I have to hide everything. No one can see the real me. If they see the real me, I won't be seen as someone worthy to bring along the gospel. And the whole point is, you're a donkey, man. Like, that's the whole point. You're awkward. You don't know the right things to say. You don't forgive enough. You're angry. You do passive-aggressive stuff, and then aggressive-aggressive. You can't make up your mind. You're a good student and a bad student. You don't love your parents well. You have anger toward your parents. You don't love your, your, your roommate well. Like the list goes on. And that's the kind of people that Jesus says, I'm gonna usher in my kingdom with them. Not with this person, this person that everyone says, they're amazing, but with the ones who are covered with splinters. Isn't that great news for us? We're stinking donkeys. Like, that's a compliment. You should say, hey, just want to remind you, you're a donkey. Like, Thank you. Like, that's a compliment in terms of the gospel. Secondly, we're almost done here. When we see God in tears, um, I think it addresses the way we view him. I, I wonder, your caricature of Jesus, when you think about God and you disobeying him, I wonder what the first image you have of his countenance. Is it one of great disappointment? Is it one of anger, short temper? Like when you think about the ways that you consistently rebel and you're thinking, okay, how is God seeing me right now? Is your view of him with a large sandal ready to crush you until you do something good? Or is it that of a king who weeps over his people and has compassion because he knows they are bound by chains and he's the only one that can break the chains as we just sang. And there's empathy, right? There's empathy. Is that the kind of countenance you see? Because what I'm seeing here is he is a God who weeps on our behalf. He weeps for us. Not without hope, with hope, but weeps for us. When's the last time, honestly, when's the last time like you actually were brought to a place of 
of emotionally being spent and weeping over your sin or somebody else's? Like when's the last time that happened? Have you just become so accustomed to certain things where you don't even feel those things? He weeps over these things. Lastly, we see God with a whip. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. We see God with a whip. Good news. Before we ever see God with a whip, we see the tears in God's eyes. So we see mercy and compassion before this. And the way the world views him is this, and maybe if you respond well enough, this in compassion. And we don't see the whip until we see the compassion. We see the cross. So many things happen at the cross, but this beautiful compassion and empathy. It's not just one or the other. So I want to ask you this. As you start thinking about this tonight, um, which one or two of these incidents and images do you naturally gravitate toward? You think about that, and I think the challenge tonight and the response for us tonight, even as we worship and then we leave, is this. God, I don't want to have that view only. Like, I don't just want to think you're, you're super humble and compassionate. I need you to cleanse me and do a work in me, which means you might need to discipline me. Good news about the word discipline is always restorative. It's not the same as wrath. Discipline is not wrath. Wrath is I'm going to crush you, you're done. Discipline is this is going to hurt and it's going to stir up affection for me in your heart because of it. Hardest thing for me as a parent to do but it's always restorative. So maybe you're sitting here going, you know what? I'm just numb and kind of don't care about my rebellion. Maybe that's what you actually need a better image of right now. Maybe you're this person going, no, he is full of truth. He can just beat me down if he needs to. I deserve it. I'm the worst. I'm a sinner. Horrible. Maybe, just maybe, you need to venture over here a little bit. (laughs) Say, yeah, he's, he's humble. He doesn't crush you with his humility. And he's compassionate and he cares for you. Somewhere in there, we need a robust, full view of his kingship. I think it changes us, right? I think it changes us. So here's how we end the series. There's many ways one can use their power. The way Jesus uses his power is not by oppressing, but giving us freedom and hope, right? And so let's just ask him to give us a full view of who he is as a king. See what that does to us. God, um, Tonight, uh, there's just so many things kind of moving in Luke chapter 19. And um, yet we look at Jesus, our King, and you, by your Holy Spirit, have given us insight to your word that Luke has, has laid out for us on purpose. That we would see some, some aspects of Jesus as King God, I'm asking if we have a very limited, narrow view and caricature of what we believe Jesus to be, would you make us wildly uncomfortable? Would you stretch us so we can be a people who respond to the fullness of his kingship, not just a portion? So God, we're going to sing to you because we don't We don't have a lot of ways that we know how to immediately respond, but we do know this. We want to sing songs that declare who you are. We want to sing songs that declare how we long to respond to you. So we want to preach what is true about you through these songs. Would we go hoarse by declaring these things tonight? We love you. In Christ's name, amen.